This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I Hate White America. And the author is Ashley Toes. And Ashley joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ashley. Hey, how you doing? Well, first of all, um, the title gets our attention right away, and, and it's obvious that you're writing about your view about racism, stereotypes, havoc in America between white America and black America. You even have a warning at the beginning of your book. Uh, this book was written based on the fact, opinion, and my point of, of view. If I offend you or you feel that I am politically incorrect, please feel free to correct me in the privacy of your own home. <laughs> so uh, you're not pulling any punches. No, um, I put that warning there because I know that racism is a sensitive topic and that people tend to get really emotional about it and Everybody wants to say, well, this was wrong. Do you know this or do you know that? And I just wanted it to be clear in the very beginning that, you know, a lot of it was based off personal experience, based off observations, and facts that, you know, you can't hide. Right. Well, and you also say uh, this book is expressing, is not expressing, I want to emphasize that, is not expressing my hate for white America, but rather my aggravation. Yes. Um, I use hate as an aggravation word. I didn't, I don't hate anyone. I would never hate anyone. I would never spread hate. I would never um, do anything to purposely cause hurt, harm to anybody. But um, it's kind of like when you say, I hate when you leave uh, the faucet running, or I hate when a person doesn't use their blinker in traffic. You know, right. it's that kind of hate. It's not a, a actual hatred. Well, tell us how this book came about. Uh, a little bit about your background and, and how this book came about. Well, um, I was... 16 years old, and I experienced a um, a situation with an older white gentleman who really showed what racism looks and sounds like. And he was talking very degrading to me and things like that, and I was so angry, and I didn't know what to do. So I decided to write a book about racism and about hate and about discrimination and about things that grew between black and white America and it took me about six years to write and um, once I was finished with it I had to publish it because every day in my state of Mississippi you see it you see it you see it you see it and now you can see it all over the nation it's all over the news So you see all American people, everyone kind of falls into a, a category that you discuss in your book. 
minorities are the people most affected by racism and discrimination? Yes. The thing about the word minority is that depending on the circumstance, anyone can become a minority. But um, as far as, you know, when we talk about just race, blacks, Hispanics, Mexicans, um, Iranians, anyone who doesn't fit into certain categories and don't have certain labels, they are mostly affected. And at any point that you don't fit in and that you don't begin to be socially accepted by different groups and institutions, then you feel the effects of discrimination and prejudice. And sometimes it's not always racism, but in many cases it is. We often call America the land of the free. How do you react to that? I think that America being born and bred off capitalism, which I'm now writing a book about, um, that's what makes it free. The fact that nobody can really completely stop you from making a living. They can try to limit you, but they can't stop you from earning money in this country. But when it comes to social um, institutions, when it comes to any situation other than trying to make a living, then some people aren't free. Some people have to work in cubicles every day. Some people are in a chain gang, such as jail. Some people are, you know, bound by many things and yoked by many things that don't allow them to feel free. You write about who's to blame. So who is to blame? I think that everybody plays a part. I don't I don't blame any one person or any one race. I think that everyone plays a role, but most important the most important role is lawmaking. Racism was written into the constitution. You know, and the fact that our founding fathers wrote all this legal documentation excluding blacks and any other race or group of people other than white is what bred racism because it's the law. It was against the law for black people to do many things. So when it's against the law, yeah, it's racism, but it's the laws that are keeping racism alive. Tell us about that. How is the law keeping racism alive? Okay, well, when they first began, the three-fifths law, that's racism in itself. For every five black slaves, you only count three. Now, how are you going to say a person isn't a person? Only three-fifths of a person. You understand what I'm saying? And then that goes back to capitalism because we did it like that because of taxes. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, back then, back then, blacks blacks weren't considered human. They were considered just property. They weren't people. They were property. That's racist. Right. You understand what I'm saying? That's that's a that's a racist mindset. I'm not a human, but you're procreating with me. We're having mixed mulatto babies together. I'm not a human, but 
but I'm mentally capable enough to work on your plantation and feed your children and care for your children. And some women were even breastfeeding. The slaves were breastfeeding the, you know, white children. So that's racist. You have a title, The Root of All Evil, title of a chapter in your book. Tell us about that. Well, I'm not very religious, not, but I'm very spiritual. And I do believe in good and evil. And I do believe that ultimately when you're committing racism and discrimination and prejudice against a group of people based off your own naive upbringing, your own naive thoughts, or whatever piece of history it was taught to you in order for you to feel this type of way, once you commit those acts against people, that's evil. That's wrong. You know? And if you purposely lynch people, you purposely like the guy go into churches and shoot, say you're there to shoot black people, you know, when you're raping women and enslaving men still to this day through bogus laws and felony charges and over sentencing and things like that, you're committing acts of evil because you're purposely doing wrong to someone else. And I take it, it's the devil. Honestly, I just boils down to being the devil. Another chapter in your book talks about public assistance. Uh, how do you see this as part of racism in America? Public assistance. Well, when you get to that chapter, before you get to that chapter, you will see that that's another section in my book. And I am not a biased person. There's a section in my book called We Did It to Ourselves. And it goes back to you asking me who's to blame. You know, everyone plays a role. As far as public assistance goes, for one, people aren't receiving public assistance. They basically, it's saying the system isn't working. So we have to keep people in the system. But I think there is a certain complacency when it comes to people who are receiving assistance. And people aren't really living up to their true potential, their true purposes in life. They aren't achieving any goals, and that's any person, not just black people, but people, period, who get caught up in, well, I don't have to worry about this, I don't have to worry about that, and as a society, it's holding us back. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm not saying people don't need it, because there are people who need it, but I do feel like that there has, there should always be this initiative to do better. You know, and if, if you're not going out to look for a better job because you don't want to not get food stamps, I find that a problem. You know, you don't want to make more money because then you don't qualify for housing assistance. That's a problem. You don't, I don't never own anything. You know, everything is always the possession of somebody else. You can always get kicked off of existence. You can always get kicked. And, and that's no way to live with uncertainty of your future or of your children's future. Under that same second part in your book, 
that you have titled We Did It to Ourselves. You have a chapter on hip-hop in America. What kind of an impact is hip-hop in America? What what What's going on there? Well, hip-hop is a very influential genre of music. And you have people of all races, all colors, and all over the globe who are attracted to this music and who sometimes go out and live out the lyrics of this music. But for some reason in America, a lot of times you have people who want to blame hip-hop for things that are wrong with this country and things that are wrong with the black community. When I feel like, yeah, there is an influence there, but you can't blame hip-hop for the crime rate. You can't blame hip-hop for the dropout rate. You can't blame hip-hop for inequality. You can't, you know, you can't look at hip-hop and the way they dress and the way, and then, well, if you have on baggy pants and a baseball cap, then you must be a thug. Or if you, you know I mean, it's starting to, people are stereotyping people based off of the music, and that's not right. That's not fair. What are your feelings about how to make it better? How do we make it better, Ashley? Well, uh, the first thing to make it better is we all have to get on the same page. Many of the lies about black people, about Native Americans, about how this country was founded, about racism, about um, if you're non-white, then you're inferior and all of that. First, those things first have to be stumped out. You know, the truth about a lot of things first have to be revealed and people have to accept it as this is the truth. And after that, we have to begin to treat people the way we really want to be treated. I mean, it goes back to the golden rule, you know, and then after that, we have to figure out a way to create a fair economical society for everybody. I'm not saying go in a rich pocket and take their money and get start handing it out to people. But I do feel like the taxes, different rules and regulations should be changed and that they should start teaching more and more people about money how it grows. It should teach more people about just how to live in a society of diversity versus saying, well, America is a, it's, it's a melting pot. America has melted. America was full of diversity once the Europeans came and the Africans came and the Native Americans. Like, from day one, it was already diversified and for people to try to be one-sided and biased and really patriotic about a race is fascinating to me. We've been listening to Ashley Toes. She's the author of her book, I Hate White America. Ashley, what's the best way to get your book? My book is for sale on Amazon.com um, and all you have to do is type in I Hate White America I should pop up. I have a blog. 
So if you want to read some of the different things that I talk about in my writing style, I hate whiteamerica.blogspot.com. And if you want to contact me through my email, I have I hate whiteamerica at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Enjoyed it myself. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Love Doesn't Die. And the author is Angela Brent Harris. And Angela joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Angela. Hello. Great. Just really good to have you with us. Uh, This book is uh, an inspiration sharing your early childhood and your relationship with your dad and other family members. So we look at Love Doesn't Die, and as you put it, it's inspiring, it's spiritually enriched, it's a memoir of life in Jamaica. That has to be beautiful just by itself. Yes, oh, tremendously. <laughs> right, uh, kind of growing up in, in a paradise. Certainly. And then also your home was a bit of a paradise, the way you describe it. It, it certainly was. Some of my fondest memories are living in Jamaica and living in the home setting that I grew up in, um, my mom's garden, you know, alongside with my dad and um, his enthusiasm for jazz mingled with all of that, um, created a long-lasting impression that lives in my heart forever of who I am today. Well, all of that led you to become, as you describe yourself, a peacemaker and a spiritualist. So how did that family life have such an impact on you? Well, it has an impact on me because um, from as long as I can remember, both my father and my mother instilled a spiritual lifestyle and my dad was also very religious as well and um, you know they always brought us up with a strong belief in God which also led us you know meet myself and um, my siblings um, to have a great self-worth of who we are of who you know we were as growing up as 
children and growing up to as young teenagers and adults and um they were consistent in who they were and in all the beliefs and that they taught us my greatest guru was my dad so I learned a lot of spirituality from him I learned to meditate from him when I was about 17 years old and it never it never changed it, he was just consistent so it was very easy to admire him to love him to follow him in his footsteps in who he was um, and day to day and it wasn't like okay today I'm doing this and tomorrow he actually meditated every single day and you know what I did follow in his footsteps because I do meditate twice daily and it has allowed me to not make things worry me I don't let little things bother me and um, you know what I feel free almost like a bird on top of all that your father loved music yes definitely he was a jazz enthusiast so you ended up so you ended up going to a lot of concerts with him (laughs) yes it was uh, magical for me Um, he played basically all the instruments so it was quite easy for him going to the concerts and seeing him um, vibrate with a love for the music, especially jazz, like um, like I was telling you before, and um, it was enjoyable. The type of instrumental music um, was um, something to behold for me. So you grow grow up in a home where the parents understand their responsibility. They understand that they need to have a positive influence on their children. They have to be examples. That that carries into many years of your life, that kind of an example. So as you look back on your dad and mom, do you remember a time when you didn't feel their love? I mean, was it always there? You know what? It is amazing that from, from as far as I can remember, I've never felt unloved or uncared for or unwanted. Even if I know I did something wrong and I got myself in trouble, um, I didn't feel like even if they were disappointed or upset with me, it, it's you, you look into the eyes of my dad and you would see that tenderness and that love but also you'd see like I like him talking with his eyes and saying you know I expected more from you this is not this is not the Angela I know I, I expected you to do so and so but then looking at him you see that warmth in his eyes of love but wanting so much for his children and the same with my mom she um was a very, she's a very compassionate woman, and even if we did something wrong and she would get upset because she, she's a spicy one, you know, my dad was even keel and, and very soft, um, but no, she, um, she was full of love, and you'd feel it, and after that, she would sit and always reflect or talk to you, you know, she would say, well, you know, you did this, and you did that, and mommy feels this way and so would my dad they would sit with us and discuss if we ever falter um, they would reflect and talk with us about what we did wrong or um, how we could have done something differently your dad came from a large family oh yes 
came from a, a large family indeed. And that had a, a great impact on him. Did he was he raised in that same kind of family, strong family environment? Very much so. Um, he, both his parents were principals, and um, they were very strict, and they were also very loving, very caring, and they wanted the best for their children. And it showed later on because um, the type of, like, my father's eldest brother, um, he was a, a disciplinarian, but at the same time, he was so loving and um, so caring. And all the brothers and the sisters, um, you know, my uncles and aunts, were um, just the same. They grew up in that environment, positive, yet at the same time um, very strict, especially they they wanted, um, my grandparents wanted their children to grow up to be somebody in this world, to be um, educated and um, and that was important to them, and it trickled on. Yes, surely did. So you have to work at it. A family has to work at it. Oh, definitely. You have to work at it, and it it has to be consistent, um, like a, a chain. You know, it, uh, it it has to flow, and the links of the chain together stay in intact and um, continuously, one after the next continuously going along without any breakage. What is your life like as a mother? My life, um, I am a spiritualist. I have two boys, two amazingly beautiful souls, and that's the only way I can describe it. When I was pregnant with um, both boys, and both of them were planned, which means that we um, planned the, the pregnancies, so they were um, brought in this world with love, um, during both pregnancies, I only looked at beautiful things, listened to beautiful music like Chopin. So you know what? It shows because they are very soft gentlemen. Of course, if someone were to mess with them, um, you know, they have the, the instinct, the wolf instinct in them. <laughs> but um, as a mom, um, I'm very protective over my, my children. And I grew them up with a lot of love. I tell them daily how much I love them. The eldest is 22, and my youngest is 17. And I grew them up with warmth, but at the same time, I gave them the same um, Jamaican upbringing that I grew up, the same way that I grew up. And um, I instill that the love, um, teaching them how to treat others, how they want to be treated, and... Um, it, it shows, and I am, very, and I feel very blessed with my sons today. A lot of people blame others for their problems in life, that they're not happy, but you're pretty strong about only you can make you happy. You put the responsibility right on the individual. Oh, definitely. I believe that happiness is a choice. You see, you can have, you can be the poorest person, with just a little room living in a one bedroom with a roof over your head and you have and you probably eat from hand to mouth so you, you have enough food to eat and yet you are this vibrant happy person because it's your choice to be happy and yet you can have the movie stars um, who live in mansions and they have 10 cars and chauffeurs and you know 
and everything and go to the restaurants daily and eat um, every kind of food, take a, a, a jet, private jet to some exotic island to eat some special food. But yet, you know what? Yeah, you can have those people who they're unhappy, they want to end their lives, they don't feel good about themselves, they have to use drugs, they have low self-esteem. So I have seen that from time to time, especially as a first grade teacher, um, being in the schools and seeing all different type of lifestyles, knowing that happiness is a choice. It's not like, oh, I'm going to feel happy if I go out and buy this beautiful red dress. Probably you're going on to buy this dress and you get home, you still will feel just exactly the way that you choose to feel. So that's my philosophy. When did your dad pass away? Um, November 7th this year will be five years. Five years. Now, there are friends, colleagues who were intrigued with the way you dealt with your dad's passing. Tell us about that. What were you feeling, and how did you deal with it? I dealt with it in a way that I didn't even know that I would deal with it. Um, I have been spiritually stronger over the last decade, and alongside that, I've become even closer with my father over the years. Um, he has been a, a strong spiritualist, and so have I. So we have been hearing our spirituality together, talking about it. I've been exploring Buddhism and um, Hinduism, and I would share it with my dad and talk to him on a spiritual level. I would talk to him about um, lucid dreams, about um, being clear auditory, being able to read energies. And so with all of this, you know, I could speak openly about my spirituality, about the various gifts that I get from God that um, I'm able to help others. And I would ask him about it, and um, I would talk about it. Now, a year before he passed, he wanted to see me more, and he said to me, you know, he called me Chirpy, you know, because growing up, um, he said I was happy like a little bird, but, you know, he'd say, Chirpy, Angela, daddy's going home, and he didn't have to explain to me. Once he told me that, I said, hmm, I said, you really think that? But you seem fine, you know, and he wasn't sick that time. He didn't show any form of sickness. So I was like intrigued by this and got closer to him, even closer on a spiritual level and um, anything spiritual or religious wise, I would ask him for guidance and I would bring over the, the children to see him more often and um, and then when he started to have that pain and first I thought it was his appendix, I said, oh daddy, probably it's your, it's your appendix. Because growing up, I didn't even see my dad as much as have a common cold. So I didn't think anything of it. He was in good shape and form, so I didn't think, oh, you know, he's getting sick. And for his age, he looked so, like, years younger than what his real age is. So I, I didn't even think of it. But on a soulful level, I felt like something something was wrong. And, I, and then um, we found out later that it, he had stage 4 colon cancer. And in the way in which he dealt with it, he wanted me to help him to prepare on his journey home, his, you know, and his only impeding worry or thought was about my mom. So 
basically it was me getting everything ready, getting ready um, to use my spiritual gifts that I had also to see his journey through um, with aromatherapy, um, the music when he got to hospice, and getting the getting the priest to come over to um, you know for his, the last rites and bless him and make sure um, almost like he getting ready for a trip to on a vacation. But I believe so strongly in God, and I'm so God-fearing, and with all that my dad was sharing with me, knowing that he really was was departing, and um, I had to make sure I had my soul strong enough, even though inside me, my heart was was low because I didn't want to, to lose him. But I know every time I'd ask him, Daddy, when you go, let me know that you're still with me when you're gone, you know? So he helped, and along with being a spiritualist, it helped me to deal with it in such a way that almost seems so enchanting to me that um, if someone had asked me years ago, uh, um, oh, how are you, how are you, how are you going to deal with when your dad passed or your mom passed, I would be like, I wouldn't even want to touch this subject. And I am still sometimes in awe with how his whole departure from this world went. Yeah. We've been listening to Angela Brent Harris. She's the author of her book, Love Doesn't Die, and she calls this book a magical journey of memories of her father and and the whole family of the values, the traditions, the strength of great parents, the effect they had on her, and, and how that has helped her throughout her life. Tell us, Angela, what's the best way to get your book? best way to get my book, you can get it from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse as well. Um, if you're local, you can get the book at in Florida. It's in Delray Beach. There's a beautiful, amazing store called Shining Through, and you can get a copy, um, hard copy from them there as well. And um, that's basically uh, how you can get the book in both um, in both hard copy format as well as um, you know in the other um, Kindle format as well. Thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Reliable... Oh, no, it isn't called that. It's called Leader Reliability, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. And our author who joins me from Michigan, Jeff Dudley. Welcome, Jeff, to the program. Thanks, Jay. This is a book that a lot of uh, authors attempt to finalize or, or focus on about leadership. How did you come to write your book? What is your background that allows you to comment on this important topic? Well, Jay, I have 35 years of professional experience in the chemical industry. Uh, but the the interesting thing about my life is from a very little boy, I was uh, I was put in leadership positions. I, uh, from a sports analogy, I uh, was a catcher on the baseball team. I was a quarterback on the football team and uh, continued uh, to play uh, sports into my uh, college career. So I was in leadership positions, and then uh, – Ironically enough, when uh, when I started my career, I had uh, uh, my leader uh, when I first started working became ill, so I was thrown into a leadership position uh, in the first six months of my professional career. So leadership's always been important to me, and what I have done uh, in my professional career is try to grow other leaders. I think uh, that's what leaders really do is if they are being leaders, they don't create followers, they create other leaders. So my 35 years in the professional industry, but my lifelong uh, willingness and desire to lead uh, puts me in a position, I think, that I can write about this topic. I'll pose the question that comes up in Chapter 2. Uh, what makes it so hard? Why is leadership such a difficult thing for people to, to get a grasp of? Well, I think what happens is people try to, uh, to create followers. And I think what they do is they begin to manage. Hmm. And there's an incredible difference between managing and leading. Uh, managing, uh, the followers listen and uh, wait for you to tell them what to do. And leaders just enable their uh, employees and their colleagues and those who are around them to do their job uh, and more are a coach and mentor uh, and care more about the success of the, the people that are around them than maybe their own. And leaders, uh, real leaders, actually do set examples and sometimes are the hardest working people in the, in the, uh, in the system. Yeah, they're, they're uh, I think, a great, if, again, a great sports analogy. If you look at uh, most of the captains on uh, hockey, hockey teams, they're no doubt the, usually the hardest workers and spend the most time on the ice. And I think that's the same thing in the, in the professional world uh, in business is that uh, maybe behind the scenes, but there's uh, always lots of work going on. Jeff, what's your style of writing? Would you consider it uh, informational only or is it uh, more conversational in your approach? I try to be more conversational. I try to pose questions, and, and then depending on the question I pose, sometimes I, I create my own answer. But uh, I, like to, uh, I like to engage uh, the reader and uh, have the reader feel like they're having a dialogue. One thing that's interesting about your title, and, and certainly one that I focused in on, was the, uh, the aspect of reliability. There's more to leadership than just uh, standing on the sidelines and, and giving out uh, instructions, and, as you've already mentioned. Reliability, how important is that, and why did you use that in your title? Well, reliability, my definition for reliability, and being in the, in the chemical industry, most people's definition for reliability is about assets and how assets work and things like that. But I really believe reliability is a people thing. 
my definition for reliability is to constantly and consistently meet your commitments. And so that's what people have to do. And when people begin to to do that, uh, they do two things. One, they act like leaders. And two, uh, they minimize unplanned events around them. And so can you imagine working in a whole organization where everyone meets their uh, commitments all the time? Uh, haven't worked in one yet that everyone does, but I've worked in, uh, in a few that then helped to create a few where uh, the vast majority do, and it's it's just a different way of working. I share with my listeners a little of the uh, anecdotal stories that you've included. One is about the Delta Corporation. What was that story about, and how did that relate to your book and your concept? Well, I am a uh, a, a client or a uh, customer of Delta Airlines, and uh, have have been back to the days when uh, before Delta merged with Northwest, and. Uh, I, I unabashedly say that I am a, a huge Richard Anderson fan. I uh, actually had the chance to meet uh, him and had a conversation with him. And his whole conversation was about reliability and how humans are a part of reliability and that, that the equipment is, only, is typically designed to run. It's just uh, we humans intervene and cause it not to. So, uh, And being a... Uh, a customer of that airline, I have seen them grow and change. And you know, the the interesting thing is the the world has too, because if you go look at their uh, their stock price uh, two years ago and what it is today, uh, it's just a testament of uh, a culture of reliability. In the professional world, you get the chance to have create the culture, but. Uh, typically, it's either reliable, uh, reliable culture or a cost culture where people are cost conscious and cost cutting. The two can't live together. You know, uh, it's the great uh, quote by Abraham Lincoln that a house can't survive divided. And uh, I just, uh, I just think that uh, that company uh, sort of is is a role model to other uh, big asset intensive companies on how to create a reliable culture. You've also highlighted the lives of some exceptionally well-known leadership, and you've also commented that they led cultural changes because they disagreed with all or part of the culture they were living in. This applies to business and to personal lives, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. When you, uh, firsthand, if you go to try to change the culture of, uh, of anything, you will meet resistance. And, you know, the, the few that I named were Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Mother Teresa and the likes of those folks. And, you know, when they, uh, when they wanted to change the culture, and, and the interesting thing for me is it typically takes one person to do it. And I'll, what I tell the, the folks that I teach about this topic is that uh, it only takes one other person. So you have to convince one other person that it's the right path to take, and you can begin to change the culture. But you will meet resistance. Culture change is a, is a hard job. It takes a long time, but you have to believe without a doubt that that's what you want to do. And, and if you do, it, it can happen, and I've had the pleasure of working in a few that, that really have. One of the 
items that you also highlight in your book is uh, the ability or the focus of prior prioritizing tasks and processes. Is there an easy way to do that, or do you have a, a special way to accomplish that in your own personal management style? Yeah, what, what I think, uh, I think it is getting the input of others. Uh, one of the one of the things that uh, we often do as leaders is think we have to come up with all the answers, and mm-hmm. really what we have to do is ask the questions. Uh, my my leadership style is to engage the entire organization, and and then uh, to find out uh, from them. Uh, what the issues are because they know what the issues are oftentimes they're just never asked or or they're in a in a uh, managing situation where they're waiting for the the person who is their administrative leader to ask them the question on and they just they give answers they they don't give uh, their their opinions jeff who is your leadership role model in your personal life if you have one or maybe corporate that uh, inspires you and also your book, when you began to write it, who did you have in mind? Who did you think would, would really focus in and benefit from your experience? Well, I, I'll answer the second question first. I, the book is really written for folks who, uh, who have organizations or, or find themselves in a leadership position, uh, or they want to change the culture of the, the situation they're in to become more reliable. They, uh, and so so that's who it's written for. But the interesting thing is, is that it also can help an individual change the way they do things. Uh, I think we all have our own personal culture that we create, and if there's something in your personal culture that uh, that you would like to change, uh, the the tenets of this book will help you do that. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the to the uh, person who wrote. Uh, wrote in the beginning of my uh, book uh, for me, and his name is Miles Martell. In fact, he is he is he was my mentor professionally and still is a very, very dear friend. Uh, he, uh, cool thing about Miles is he was the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, so uh, yeah. he, he, he knew some very important people. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he took me on uh, as a, uh, a mentee, and he was my mentor. And he's actually the the person that convinced me to write this book. Uh, you know, I had lots of thoughts on how you ran, how you could run businesses, and how you could create leaders. And uh, one day during a uh, mentoring session, he said, uh, "You need to write the, a book, and and I'm going to hold you accountable for that." And that's mm. sort of where it started. Wow, accountability is an important part of of uh, any lifestyle, isn't it? It, it absolutely is, especially uh, leaders. Uh, when I, when in the book, when I talk about accountability, there, I believe there are two types. There's uh, personal accountability and corporate accountability. And people who are corporately accountable say, "Yeah, I agree with what you're saying," and then they say, "Someone needs to do something." <laughs> uh, what leaders say is, uh, and who take personal accountability is, "Is I need to do something," and then they go do it. Yes, absolutely agree with that. Jeff, how long did it take to complete your book, 168 pages of uh, well-thought-out well well out? Well, I have to give uh, the folks at iUniverse a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I, I put everything in, in a format that, that I thought was a good book, and through lots of good coaching and lots of, uh, lots of uh, just uh, understanding what I was trying to create, they, they helped me tremendously. But 
I would say the whole uh, from from the inception of thinking about writing it to actually doing it, the process probably took me uh, somewhere around eighteen months to to twenty months to complete. Well, that's not too bad. Were there consequences? I mean, any challenges that you hadn't anticipated that you had to overcome? Yeah, the uh, the when I when I wrote the book and uh, and had my original chapter sequence uh, when when they when the folks at iUniverse did the content editing they said uh yeah we really really like this uh and this is really really good but we would move chapter six to chapter three and i can't remember exactly what but when you move chapter six to chapter three chapter six no longer has four and five to create it so there was Mm. there was some significant rewriting going on but but the the rewrite was absolutely worth it, and and it was uh, it made a much better product. Are you inspired to write a, a sequel or a follow up to this? Well, you know, one of the interesting conversations I've had with the folks at iUniverse is they they really have said uh, uh, that uh, you know you could create this whole thing into a uh, to a self help book, and and I really think you could and. I even would have a title for it. Instead of leader reliability, I would combine. I'm great for making up words. I'd call it your reliability. <laughs> and uh, and maybe uh, when I uh, when I finally do retire, I retired from uh, from the corporate corporation that I worked at and uh, started my own business. And uh, and fortunate for me, another uh, company actually acquired my business. So now I'm Beautiful. doing a lot of work for them. And. Uh, and they actually uh, use the content of this book in their uh, with how they help their customers, and that's just a great thing. That's another reason I wrote it. I just want to help people. But uh, you know, when I finally do, maybe uh, hang it up for for good. I I think I'm. You know, it, it might be fun to do it again. Well, congratulations on completing this Leader Reliability. Jeff Dudley has been my guest from Michigan, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. Jeff, my listeners need to get a copy of this. If they're in any kind of leadership, how do they get one? Uh, it's very, uh, very easy. They can go to uh, the iUniverse website. They can go to uh, Amazon.com, and, uh, or they can go to Barnes & Noble and ask them to order it for them. So that's... Uh, that's the places they can get it. Is there another place they can get in contact with you? Do you have a website? Uh, I do. It is called uh, Leader Reliability, the same title as the uh, as the book. dot com. So it's a it's an easy find. dot com or dot net. dot com. dot com. Excellent. Well, great visiting with you, Jeff. Uh, Listeners, get a copy of this if you have any questions about leadership or some uh, want some motivation. This is a book you'll need to read. Leader Reliability. Jeff Dudley has been my guest. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.